It is so good to look around this room and see the eyeballs <laughs> of people I know. I can't tell you. It's been so long since I've been here to drive into this parking lot and park, pull my car in reverse and put it in the parking place. It warms my heart. And seeing all of you, it just really warms my heart to see you. Aaron, lovely to see you. So, I have to tell you, I am completely in love with Mark. I have to say that. Just before the pandemic began, my husband and I, well, we moved into this whole new neighborhood, right? And even with social distancing and masks and trying to be all oh so careful, I still want to know the woman who lives next door to me, you know? I want to get to know her. Um, So naturally, I want to know her name, Joyce, and that she's married to Jamie. And I need to know where she's from. She's from South Carolina, and that she's lived in many different states, and a little bit about her family, and that she loves gardening, which is a big thing for me, and such. But to become close friends, confidants, We have to get to know each other a lot more than that. Can we share our hearts with each other? Can we trust each other? Can we be easygoing? Can we laugh together? Now, all of that could take years. But as with some friendships, a bond may happen almost overnight. With the help of Mark and Matthew, Luke and John, oh, but don't forget the Holy Spirit, you and I can see into the heart and the mind of Jesus and begin to know and to trust him in a way that opens on to the deepest of all possible friendships, a friendship that is light and life-giving, a bit of heaven on poor old tired, broken planet Earth. A friendship with the one who has known you before your birth. Each writer of the four Gospels in the New Testament has this special lens through which he views Jesus of Nazareth. Two, tell the story of Jesus' birth and a bit about his early life. Two, Mark and John focus exclusively on his three years of ministry. Now, two are written by apostles, some of his closest chosen followers, and all are set near the Sea of Galilee with lengthy narratives as Jesus sets out for Jerusalem, the cross and resurrection. Many stories are similar, and some are unique to a particular writer's outlook, experience, and sources. So what are the characteristics that make the gospel, according to Mark, unique? Well, for one thing, it's the first reliable written account of Jesus' life and ministry. The writers of Matthew and Luke 
used Mark as a primary source. They drew many stories and words directly from Mark's gospel. It's the shortest and the first gospel to be written down, probably in the mid to late 50s. In the gospel of Mark, the narrative is fast-paced, action-packed, and filled with little details. Parts of it breathe the air of an eyewitness account. Who is this fellow, Mark or John Mark? And why can we confidently claim that his writing about Jesus is reliable? Well, in 1 Peter 5.13, Simon Peter refers to John Mark as his son in the faith. According to the testimony of early church fathers, Jerome, Irenaeus, Eusebius, Mark was an interpreter and a scribe for the apostle Peter. He wrote a short gospel while in Rome, they say, at the request of believers there. The book we're studying relies heavily on stories told often by Peter. Mark wrote roughly 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. At that time, Nero was the emperor of Rome. You've probably heard of him. Paul was in the middle of his third missionary journey, and Jerusalem was about 10 years away from being completely decimated by Roman legions led by Vespasian. Sometime after the execution of Peter, John Mark left Rome and brought his gospel to Egypt and established a church and a school in Alexandria. The gospel was written for a wide audience of believers, especially those who were not raised as Jews, and this becomes very evident because of the stories that Mark selects to tell about Jesus and Gentiles that he met during his his ministry. He wants to familiarize them with customs, Jewish customs and Aramaic words. He explains them as he goes. Because only by understanding these customs will they understand that Jesus is the culmination of God's work, not only with Israel, but with the entire world. Now, we know a little bit about Mark's connection with Simon Peter. Let's look further back in time to find out more. John Mark would have been a boy or a very young man during the time of Jesus' ministry. He was the son of Mary, a wealthy woman who lived in Jerusalem. He was also the cousin of Barnabas, who later became a friend and co-worker of the Apostle Paul. His mother's house was possibly the location of the Last Supper. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, the house became a gathering place for Christians in those dangerous days. And it was during that time that Mary's young son, already a follower, became eager to work for Christ. So, John Mark went with Paul and Barnabas as a helper on their first missionary journey. But at Perga, he left them to return home to Jerusalem. 
This is talked about in Acts 12 and 13. For Paul's second missionary journey, Barnabas proposed Mark as a companion again, but Paul refused to accept him. And so strong was the disagreement between them that Paul and Barnabas parted ways and went on separate missions. Paul left with Silas, Barnabas with Mark. Eventually, Paul and John Mark were reconciled, and we know this because we find them together in Rome. This is mentioned in Colossians 4.10 and Philemon 1.24. Later, he seems to have been with Timothy at Ephesus when Paul wrote to him during his second imprisonment, urging Timothy to get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful in my ministry, 2 Timothy 4.11. In his study of Mark, Sinclair Ferguson tells us, here is someone writing about Jesus who was probably on the fringes of the early disciple band. His relatives included those who knew Jesus, his friends, and perhaps even his parents knew him well. Here's a man with first-hand knowledge of the apostles Peter and Paul. Not only that, but he's experienced failure as well as success in the service of Christ. And perhaps this, it's this that first drew him to Peter. It was certainly this that would have helped him understand how Peter must have sometimes felt during the ministry of Jesus. Mark's narrative style has some unique characteristics. First, it rushes along like an excited storyteller, stringing together these memories with the use of and. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Mark 1, 34 and 35. Words like immediately or without delay add to this really rapid pace. Many words of astonishment and amazement pepper the writing like exclamation points. Stories are used like these building blocks, side by side, and there are few transitions that tell us where or exactly when an event took place. So this gives the gospel a quality that's kind of like a play with a very spare, minimal stage and backdrop. That takes the reader's attention directly to Jesus. And Jesus is the central subject in every story except two at the very beginning about John the Baptist. This Jesus is a man of action. We come to know him more by what he does than by what he says. So to understand what the gospel means, it becomes important to visualize this action. For example, we know that Jesus is a teacher, of course, but Mark doesn't often tell us exactly what he taught. For Mark, the teacher himself is clearly more important than what he taught. 
His humanness is on display as he reacts to those around him. Sorrow, disappointment, tenderness, amazement, grief, even ignorance. Jesus strides through the gospel clarifying three things about himself. His divine authority, his mission to suffer and die for humanity, and his divine sonship. From the opening chapter, as he's baptized all the way to the cross, Jesus is the Son of God. Mark's use of irony surprises us. He portrays Jesus as one who challenges and confounds and sometimes breaks conventional stereotypes. This happens as Jesus spars with religious leaders or unexpectedly commends the most unlikely people. From a leper to a penniless widow. Those closest to Jesus, like his family and the disciples, struggle to understand his mission. While outsiders, like a random blind man or a centurion, they get Jesus, just intuitively, over and over and over again, in a wide variety of settings, Jesus steps into this shattered situation. Controversy and brokenness, they swirl around him. He's like a rock in the middle of an angry stream. He always remains his own person with sovereign, divine freedom and authority. Jesus challenges the status quo, turns the world upside down, and holds out hope for what can be. Hope for the kingdom. The second gospel uses a special technique as it rushes along. Mark will sometimes just interrupt one story, and then insert a second one that seems to be unrelated, and then pick up and complete the first story. For example, in chapter 5, Jairus enters, and he pleads with Jesus to come and heal his daughter at once. Everyone rushes off, but they're interrupted by this desperate woman who secretly touches Jesus' garment. And only after the woman is healed does the crowd proceed to Jairus' house. This technique of inserting a second story into the first one is known conveniently as a sandwich. Each sandwich unit focuses on a single theme, like discipleship or the dangers of falling away, apostasy. The second story, or the meat, clarifies the theme of the entire sandwich. Just as in the example about Jairus, the second story of the woman with the hemorrhage quickly highlights the importance of faith in a startling way. The Gospel of Mark points out several distinctive themes. Discipleship comes up repeatedly. 
As Jesus serves with humility, so must his disciples. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Mark 8:34. Discipleship means spending time with Jesus, sitting with him, hearing him, and following him on the way. As James Edwards puts it in the pillar, New Testament commentary, what Jesus has to teach can only be learned in an apprenticeship relationship. Watching, listening, trying, failing, suffering, following a master who is sometimes tender, sometimes exasperated, but always patient and steadfast. The 12 disciples may have been there with him, but they often showed a complete lack of understanding of who he was and what his mission entailed. Surprisingly, this doesn't seem to compromise their discipleship. What a comfort, hey? They and we are on the way with Christ. Faith is another repeated theme. Mark shows two different kinds of responses to faith in Jesus. One faith response seems to come easily, especially to outsiders and often to Gentiles. For example, there are these four friends carrying a paralyzed man to Jesus who are absolutely remarkable for their instinctive faith. As is the father of an epileptic son, and above all, a centurion at the foot of the cross. Another type of faith comes slowly to insiders, those who come to know Jesus intimately over time, like his family, and particularly the 12 disciples. Like the blind man at Bethsaida, they can be made to see also by traveling with him, by hearing, by receiving, and bearing fruit. But seeing and understanding requires the repeated touch of Jesus, often laboriously over time. Not only is the gospel written for Gentiles, but Mark makes it clear that Jesus often ministered directly to Gentiles. Galilee was known as Galilee of the Gentiles for a very good reason. There was a large number of non-Jewish sojourners or just immigrants, people, who lived there. Mark also tells of journeys that Jesus made outside of Israel into Gentile regions like Decapolis, where he feeds 4,000, and even further into Tyre and Phoenicia, where he meets a woman with undaunted faith and heals a deaf mute. According to Mark, Jesus finds more receptive hearts in Gentile regions than he does in Jewish ones. Another theme that comes up frequently in the first half of Mark is the command of silence. Readers, you all will 
have the same sensation. I had it too as I was reading. You just wonder, why is it that Jesus commands the demons and the persons he heals and his disciples and just onlookers to be quiet, be silent about his power and his divine nature? It's a curious thing. James Edwards suggests three different reasons. First of all, that Jesus wanted to protect himself from false expectations that were rampant in the culture. Israel was looking for a military Messiah, someone who would defeat the Romans. And Jesus knew his mission was not as a soldier, but as a servant. Second, Jesus concealed his power because he knew that faith could not be born through spectacle alone. Saving knowledge would come through experiencing Jesus himself. And last, Jesus knew that understanding him as Messiah meant seeing his kingship through the cross. As Edwards puts it, at the cross, Jesus is revealed as the suffering son of God, whose rejection, suffering, and death reveal the triumph of God. The Gospel of Mark has this pretty simple structure. It falls naturally into two different halves. The first half is Jesus' ministry in Galilee and the Gentile regions that are just north of there. That's chapter 1 to chapter 8, verse 26. And then the second half begins with chapter 8, verse 27, when Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. He asks the disciples, he says, uh, who do people say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ. And it continues with Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem to his death and resurrection at the conclusion of chapter 16. In the midst of global COVID uncertainty, political tension, culture wars, racial protests, 2020 in America saps our energy. It drains us all like nothing I have ever experienced in my lifetime. Let your mind create an emotional backdrop of 2,000 years ago. How does their time compare with ours? What were the challenges that they faced? This backdrop would be one of strife, conflict, and harrowing intensity. It's a literal battleground formed by foreign occupation. Jews who'd already been oppressed by Babylonians and Assyrians, well, now it's the Roman Empire. There's burdensome taxation, heavy-handed laws enforced by the sword and the cross. Everything was fraught with tension. There were gangs roaming the countryside, revolts rising and being crushed by the legions of Rome. Galilee, the main area where the Gospel of Mark takes place outside of Jerusalem, was home for revolutionaries. There were secretive whispers of betrayer and betrayed that filtered through the marketplaces and the meager homes. Galilee was poor, tough, and hard. It was on the fringes of 
Jewish leadership and religion. To the Romans, if you were Galilean, you were already suspect. Roman occupation was trying enough. But strife within the Jewish religious factions made matters absolutely unbearable for the poor and hungry. Religious leader groups like the Essenes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they bickered over tradition and Mosaic law, arguing and jockeying for status and grappling for the little power that they were given from Rome. They were experts at making themselves look important while making common folk feel ashamed. Piling on heavy religious burdens and teaching of an angry God impossible to reach, everything was loud and pressure-packed. And it was into this world that stepped Jesus of Nazareth. As you read through the Gospel of Mark, imagine sitting at Peter's feet, the burly fisherman, as he tells each precious story. One act of wonder and mercy after another. Each story often disconnected from the next. Chronology, eh, not all that important. Vivid images seared into Peter's memory. The central presence of Jesus, the Master, the Son of God, binding these stories all together going in and out of humble villages and striding across the countryside, doing good. In a synagogue, Peter remembers the actions of his master, but maybe not the sermon. The people who were healed, the hubbub of controversy, but maybe not the complex teaching. Where Matthew was filled with sermons and parables, Mark's parables are few, but very detailed. Peter, through the pen of Mark, remembers how the one he loves moves among the desperate and the poor. In his mind's eye, Peter looks where his master looks. And so, too, Mark notices the looks and gestures and emotions of the Lord. Jesus looks around the crowd to see Who touched his cloak? He sees the rich young ruler, and he loves him. He looks around at his disciples when he warns them about the danger of riches. He touches the leper, and he mimes for the deaf-mute. Dead, and then miraculously alive at his word, he lifts a young girl to her feet. He sighs with exasperation over the insensitivity of his hearers and then patiently teaches them with a simple parable. His eyes flash with anger at those who try to interfere with the healing of a palsied man in the synagogue. He's moved with compassion over the hunger and fatigue of poor people. The humble and tender nature of the Son of Man is what impressed Peter. Again and again, the fishermen's stories hold him up for us to see. Keep an eye on the disciples also as you go. Consider how like children they are at times, without pretense. Pretty messy. Notice how their confusion, astonishment, 
questions, fear, misunderstanding, grief, obstinate self-interest, and light bulb moments of faith mirror your own reactions as you walk with the Master. Observe the women disciples in the background. Watch how they serve, follow, and remain with Jesus in the most fearful circumstances. I ask myself, what hope drew them? What did these men and women see and hear and feel that caused them to stay the course with Jesus? Almost to the very end, right up to Gethsemane and beyond for a few Imagine the forces arrayed against their master. Remember the teaching they absorbed from childhood, overturned by his words. Imagine how each one must have struggled questioning his brothers. What was that, he said? Eat my flesh? What could Jesus possibly mean by that? But she's a prostitute. He's a tax collector. And that, that man is a leper. Who is this Jesus? So many followers left for this small band to stay. Their understanding may have been vague, their faith fragile, but these were his chosen, and Jesus held them fast. What hope I find when I read of them and him. Jesus walked with them. He loved them. And he loves us too in exactly the same way. Despite our fears and failures, as John puts it near the end of his gospel, chapter 13, verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. When they flee on that terrible night, what does he do? Love them. When Peter denies him, what does Jesus do? Love him. Die for him. Love them to the end. In Mark, we see who Jesus was 2,000 years ago. Jesus is the same today. In Christ, the Heidelberg Catechism says, we have our own flesh in heaven. His humanity, once taken on, will never end. He has the same feelings, passions, and affections towards sinners like us, sufferers like us. As we muddle along, fatigued and confused and fearful, feeling out of control in a darkening world, his heart toward you and me is the same as it was toward Peter and Bartimaeus, Mary of Magdala and Paul. Be blessed as you read each vivid story. Allow your friendship with Jesus to deepen. Stare directly 
at his wonderful face. Come and see the Son of God through the pen of Mark. Let's pray. Oh, our Heavenly Father, you have given us such richness in the book of Mark. We thank you for every word, every story. We thank you for the part that Peter played in making this come to us from so long ago. We thank you for the part that Mark played in pinning the words to paper. Lord, I ask that you be with us as we study this book. Be with each woman. Be with her heart. May her eyes and her ears be open. May she learn. May she be able to share. Be with our groups. May there be understanding and wonderful fellowship that comes about as a result of this study. Be with us. Be with us each moment of this study this year. Thank you, Lord, for giving it all to us. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.